0: I think your connection only really can get super deep when you are able to open up those layers of yourself by getting to know yourself, and then you you can share them with another person and see how you can better harmonize together.
1: So when the curator of the longest-running study on human flourishing, the Grant study, was asked if there was any one factor that most contributed to a life well-lived, his answer was clear, love, full stop. In no small way, love makes a life. And we're not talking romantic love only. We're also talking about the love you have for family or chosen family, or for those kind of friends who make you feel seen and heard and held, or for those you're in community with who share a set of common bonds and maybe less obviously, for those you don't even know, but somehow find a place of compassion for that changes both them and you, often in ways you never saw coming. But in this day and age, These different kinds of love, they tend to feel more complicated, maybe less available and for many less accessible and easy to actually embrace. So today we're bringing you a very special episode drawing upon the deep wisdom of five past guests, each experts in the space of love and relationships and self discovery to share sometimes provocative, unique and valuable insights about how to love and be loved, how to hold relationships with curiosity and allow room for growth how to create a society-wide container for compassion, and then invite people in, even those you struggle to like or be in the same room with, let alone love. You'll hear from Julie and John Gottman, who've been married and also researching love and relationships, both clinically and in the lab, for over four decades together and writing mega best-selling books on the topic. You'll hear from Diego Perez, who most of you might know from his online moniker, Young Pueblo, On creating the space for growth, Rev. Angel, Kyoto Williams will share an expansive lens on love and its connection to compassion, holding the space for difference and liberation. And our friend, iconic spoken word artist, Q shares a beautiful spoken word piece and really a frame based on his own experience of falling in love, wrapped with an invitation for us all to find moments to create magic. So excited to share this special episode with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project.
3: Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.
1: Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. So first up, we have partners in life and work, Julie and John Gottman, who have been collaborating for decades to bring Julie's deep clinical insights working with couples to John's academic research, together with what's become known as their work in the Love Lab, training thousands of professionals and couples on how to do love better. They help us explore the critical topics that both anchor and unaddressed can trip up loving relationships built into a series of dates and opportunities to rekindle curiosity about each other, even if you've
4: been together a long time. Here's Julie and John. One of the reasons that we wrote this book, Eight Dates, was because many long-term relationships, people get so busy in their lives. They get so absorbed with the the minutia of career and children that their lives turn into this infinite to-do list. And they're not making time for one another. And so we wanted to write a book that would create eight dates in which people could connect with one another and we could rekindle curiosity in yeah. one another. And that's what these dates are for. They're for really talking about, you know, what do you need in terms of play, adventure, fun, you know, what's intimate connection, sexuality what about money? What do you feel about money? What's enough money? Why is money so important? What's the history of your family with money and your own life with money? So these eight dates are designed to reconnect people. And some of that is about nature. It's about sense of meaning, about life, dreams, shared purpose, children, community, family, all those kinds of things.
1: Yeah. And what's interesting to me about, I mean, the book is, is fabulous. By the way, it's called eight dates and we'll, we'll certainly, we'll mention it in the show notes as well. Um, it was interesting to me that, that you wrote this book also initially. It sounds like for people who are looking to find love, like here are eight dates that you can go on and eight really important things to talk exactly. about and explore with a sense of openness and curiosity to find out, are you with somebody who may be compatible, you know, long term? But it also seems like along the way, you know, like you, you both realize, oh, this isn't just for, you know, like exploring new love. This is for people who have been together for, for potentially decades to go back in and not only revisit conversations, but maybe have conversations that you've never had, even though you may be together for, yeah, you know, like a, a, a very long
4: time, which right. I thought was really exactly. interesting. So we, we field tested these dates uh, with three hundred couples. Um, you know, we we like to be empirical. These these couples were gay couples, lesbian couples, heterosexual couples, and they agreed to video to audio tape their dates so we could listen to the dates and make sure they worked.
5: Right. So, um, you know what we saw was also uh, coming from a lot of our clinical work, which is that couples can be together for decades, just like you're pointing out, and because their lives are so busy, as John was mentioning, they haven't stayed in tune with each other, right? So, each individual is evolving over time, over the years, but they're not staying in tune with how that other person is changing, how they're evolving, how their values may have changed, how their experiences are turning them in different directions. So with each chapter, we focused on something that is really important in relationships. That's what we've learned from our research, and Each date is constructed so that um, you prepare for the date by thinking about this particular topic and addressing some questions individually. Then coming together and we describe some fun activities you can do on each date and discuss particular questions we've laid out that really take a deeper path into understanding each other. So questions like, you know, for example, the chapter on money, how did your parents show that you either had enough money or not enough money? What did money mean in your family? Did it mean freedom? Did it mean power? Did it mean security? And what do you want it to mean in this relationship? How much money is enough? What are your values around money? how much money do you want, that would leave you feeling, what, secure, powerful, etc. Why is money meaningful to you? So, we have chapters on a money Family, sex and intimacy, what do you really like sexually? How did you learn about sex when you were a kid? That's a hilarious part of the conversation. Uh, Most people didn't, or they learned through pornography or something. Who the heck knows? Also, chapters on dreams. What are your dreams? Did your family, when you were growing up, honor your dreams? Did you even get to voice them? And what are your dreams now? And how can I support you with those, living those dreams, your underlying purpose for being on this planet, as well as spirituality? Some people have developed spirituality. Some people have lost it. Some people are not interested in it. So who are you regarding Mm -hmm. that topic? So the conversations are all very deepening of the relationship. We even have one on conflict, but it's not about, okay, let's have a fight. It's not that at all. Instead, what it is, is, so what's the style in which you feel most comfortable discussing a problem? How did your family handle conflicts and how do you want to? Hmm. It's more like that.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, it's really interesting also, um, as I mentioned in the opening of our conversation, my wife and I are about to become empty nesters. Woo. And so it's You're fascinating. You're not old enough for that, Jonathan. Oh, I You're am. you like,
5: you know, 30 <laughs> years old. My hairline clearly
1: reveals I'm old enough. Oh. Um, so it's interesting to me because when I think about, even if you've had these conversations or some variation of them very early in the relationship, so many people, um, when they become parents, Then all of a sudden, all the focus goes to the children, the family. The family unit becomes the center of everything. Everything happens on behalf of the family, very often the kids. What's best for the kids? And then, you know, you go about life. And then if you're fortunate and, and you know, the kids grow up and at some point they they move out and you find yourself in this place of, oh, it's just us again, you know, uh, but it's been probably decades since it's been just us. This is such a fascinating set of exercises to revisit, and and sort of, it's almost like saying, and who are are we now?
4: You know? Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, we wrote the book uh, to be an experience. I mean, how often is a book an experience, Hmm. other than reading it? But you go and have the experience of rekindling curiosity in your partner. None of the dates are confrontational. They're all fun and exploratory. That's the idea. One, you brought up a a bunch of different topics that the dates are about.
1: One of them kind of jumps out um, that I want to explore a little bit more, and that's the date around sex and sexuality, Um, especially because very often that that and money (laughs) are like the the two huge sources of both tremendous Mm -hmm. joy and connection and tremendous pain and separation. Mm -hmm. Um, So if we talk about you know potentially just quickly about each one of them, but sex, you know, it's it feels like a topic that even more than money, can be the source of great unhappiness and people just don't want to talk about or address. How how important is sex really over the long-term success of a relationship? Can it actually stay alive and healthy for decades and decades and decades? And how does that conversation unfold to a certain extent?
4: Yeah, it's really interesting. I think uh, Helen Fisher at Rutgers University has written a lot about this. She studied this idea of being in love and a lot of people have said, well, being in love has a shelf life of about 18 months. Beyond that, you can't sustain it. It's too exhausting. you know. And then you love your partner, but you're not in love with your partner. That turns out to be a myth. You can stay in love with your partner forever. There's no shelf life to being in love. And again, science has helped us understand what's involved in that. And the answer is, it's not very complicated. It's not rocket science. A study of 70,000 people in 24 countries recently done found that couples who have a great sex life are really different from couples who say their sex life is not alive anymore. And they're different in very simple ways. They say, I love you every day and mean it. They're affectionate, even in public. They give compliments to their partner. They cuddle. I find time to cuddle. They have a weekly romantic date. They pay, they pay attention to their partner. They continue to play and have fun together. And that's really vital. So our data on play, fun, and adventure is very important. In analyzing 40,000 couples about to start couples therapy, that I've done 80% of those couples say that fun has come to die in their relationship. And that's so sad. So fun, play, adventure, uh, touch, affection... Sexuality, emotional connection, they're all one fabric, and they can stay alive forever. Mm.
5: One of the other things that is really important in couples um, sexually to keep that passion alive is being able to talk about sex. You know, a lot of times when we listen to couples clinically talk about sex, you have no idea what they're talking about. You know, they'll say things like, well, you know when you did that thing that thing last night, it was really great, but, you know, it wasn't quite right. And so I would like something else. And it's really hard to put into words. You know, they'll say things like that, and you have no idea what they're talking about. They may be talking about what they had for dinner, right? So people need to um, learn how to talk about what their sexual needs are. They need to also be able to refuse sex if they need to, if they want to, without crushing the other person's ego. You know, a lot of times when people bring up what their sexual preferences are, the other person hears it as criticism, somehow that other person believes they should read the person's mind And body and know exactly what kind of touch they want, what, where they want to be touched, how hard they want to be touched, what's going to feel right for them, what the tempo of the sex should be. Well, how can they know all of that without really being able to talk about it? So in this chapter, you know, it starts with kind of those fun questions of how did you learn about it? But then it goes into, well, what is it that you would prefer? What do you like sexually? What kind of intimacy do you really prefer? Where do you like to have sex? How often? When do you like to have sex? What's your favorite time for it? In what ways would you like to be touched? What would you like for foreplay? Things like that, so that people can be really clear and on the same page and feel comfortable Having sex, feeling safe enough because they know what their other partner likes. It's mm. as simple as that.
1: I think it's really interesting, also to um, to do this as an exercise because in this particular date, you lay out a set of questions that serve as prompts that don't don't come from either partner. So it's almost like somebody else is telling us that these are the questions, these are the things that mm-hmm. we, have, you know, like we have to talk to each other about. Um, and it it almost says, "Well, I'm I'm just I'm, follow, I'm just following the instructions of this right. particular exercise, <laughs> rather than <laughs> the uncomfortable thing of like here's my checklist of things that you know like." I, 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 in a weird way, I think that probably feels more comfortable right. to people.
4: Right. There are cultural differences in America too that are really important, and a lot of times people don't have access to the subcultures in America that actually do sex very well and do romance very well. So uh, in a very large study that we did uh, with the Reader's Digest, where the Gallup Poll did all the work, we were able to ask about sexuality. I learned that in Hispanic and Latino cultures in the United States, actually, you don't feel like a man unless you know what turns your woman on. You don't feel like a woman unless you know what turns your man on. So inquiry is a very important part. And when children come, it becomes even more important And Hispanic and Latino cultures, to really emphasize sexuality. It's not the last item of a long to-do list. And with gay and lesbian couples we studied in our laboratory, they're much more comfortable talking about sex in a non-defensive way, using humor, and really listening to one another and being able to talk about it comfortably, compared to the European cultures, the African cultures in the United States that really much more uncomfortable talking about sex and where it's seen as a test of your masculinity or femininity. Mm.
1: Yeah, I, n- I never really even thought about the, the, the idea that there's a cultural overlay mm-hmm. um, to all of this. So I, I want to start to come full circle with us, um, but I thought I'd share a comment. What, um, what our listeners can't see is as we've been sitting here, we're in a little triangle. Um, and as you've both been talking I'm watching a dance happen between you. Which is which is fascinating and beautiful. Um it's this I mean, literally you know, what what our listeners can't see is you're you're sort of like you're you keep tossing the ball to each other. There's a knowing glance, like this is you and then like and you and you and there's this like really graceful dance that's been going on at <laughs> the same time. So, um, is that natural or have you guys <laughs> been practicing all of these things for a lot of years?
6: Ah,
5: well, let's see. I, you know, I think it um, has evolved over time. So, yes, we have practiced. We have practiced uh, and reached agreements. Um, and we also, because we know each other so well, we know who's strong in what topic, And so, you know, we've now got signals, eye signals to each other. But that's kind of evolved over time, too, more naturally as to, okay, that's your topic. I have no idea how to answer (laughs) that,
4: right? Um, And I have to learn not to interrupt. You know, there are times when I get real enthusiastic about something Julie is saying and I want to add something to it. I have to learn how to be quiet and just wait for her to finish. And I make mistakes. (laughs) We both do. But, you
5: know, part of the thing is, that's funny, speaking of cultures, is that, you know, John is from New York, so he'll talk fast. And, you know, I'm from Oregon, where we talk really slowly. And so (laughs) poor John is stuck, you know, having to wait and wait and wait, uh, being a New Yorker. And also the other thing, you know, that, is so true. Both of us are Jewish. Is that you know interruption and in argument is Jewish love. So you know we, we have like to, to slow things down yeah. a little bit.
1: <laughs> That's too funny. That's funny. I, I'm, I'm in Portland at least a few times a year, and oh, neat. It never it never stops to amaze me that wherever I go to get a cup of coffee, I'll step up to the counter, and the person behind the counter will just look at me and say, "Hey, so so what are you up to today?" <laughs> And, and I'm like, we don't do that. Any. We don't ask, we don't answer, we don't want to know. And it's sort of it's like it's this perfect sort of like Aww. just that one moment really demonstrates the difference in the way that we, we exist on the, the two different coasts.
5: This is true. Um,
1: so as we come full circle here, uh, in the name of this is Good Life Project, if I offer out the phrase to live a good life,
4: what comes up? Well, for me, uh, I think one of the really big realizations is that A really good love relationship is your best guarantee of health, longevity, happiness, success in life. And the emphasis is always so much in love relationships on getting the love you want. But I think what you really gain in a love relationship is you gain the ability to love. The joy is the opportunity to love fully. And that emphasis is what makes... For good living, I think. That ability to love your children well, to love your partner well. And that's what you get.
5: Mm. Can I just modify that phrase to fit what you're saying, which is give the love you want. Right. Mm. Thank you, both. Thank you.
3: Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.
5: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together.
1: in one place. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist, designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com goodlife. That's netsuite.com goodlife to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com goodlife. So I love the powerful blend of both research and lived insights, along with the fun and loving dynamic that Julie and John share through the way they interact. Next up, we have Diego Perez, who you may well know from his wildly popular writings on Instagram under the handle Young Pueblo, or from his New York Times bestselling books. His lens on the role of creating the space for individual growth, and then zooming the lens out to explore what he calls structural compassion is just so expansive and empowering. Here's Diego.
0: You know, to me, when I think about love, I mean, love is something that can hold space for multiple perspectives. And, and it's something that can allow for complexity. And I think that's um, something that is not just growing in the like activist organizing world, but all over the world, you know, that we can be able to still function harmoniously without having to like hate each other or or demonize each other in, in certain ways. Because at the end of the day, like everybody makes mistakes. Like, you know, we're, we're all incredibly imperfect human beings. And what matters is like, are we, open to to changing and being better?
1: Yeah, it's such an important question, especially in this moment in time, right? Because we're all dropped into this space where there's so much disenfranchisement, but there's also so much isolation and separatism and dehumanization. It's sort of like, you know, there's an installation of beliefs and values that rise to the level of identity. And once that becomes that, it becomes brutally hard to back away from that, even when you're presented with, really strong evidence that it's not right. And I feel like, yeah, I mean, um, I hope you're right in in sort of like, (laughs) you know, I feel like we, we have been dropped into this sea of pain of isolation and dehumanization. And, you know, I'm waiting for that pendulum to swing back towards openness and realizing that we're sort of like all part of like the same fiber of, of humanity. Um, it sounds like you may you may be a little bit further along in seeing and stepping into that space than I am at this point.
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's a struggle. It's a struggle to have people who, you know, that that there are people who exist in the world who don't like you because of different facets of your identity. And then there's also a struggle to be attached to different parts of your identity when in reality you're there's nothing static about you. You know, a piece of your identity that may have been so important to you 7 years ago may mean nothing to you today, because you've just grown in so many different ways. And if you were to attach yourself and stick to that part of your identity, you would actually be limiting your own flourishing. Um, So I think even within the, the work that I do within myself, I've really tried to sort of shift the way I see identity to just to think about it as a flowing river, because it just it just keeps moving, and it'll move and sort of switch itself up in a way that can meet the moment as opposed to just like trying to make the moment fit you, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, no, it definitely does. Um, You know, the Buddhist path was, is always fascinated me because they've, they've carved out two paths, you know, the the householder approach and the monastic path. Yeah. Yeah. And there's this really fascinating acknowledgement of the fact that some people are going to go and spend a lot of time in solitude or remove themselves from society and others, are actually going to stay completely immersed in civil life around them and that there you don't actually have to step out. If you make that choice, if it's right for you, there's a way to do it. But if you also choose to be completely immersed in life as it happens and swirls around you all day, there's also a way to do it that way. You can be present in that life and also present in your own unfolding, in your own process of liberation and collective liberation without having to extract yourself from it. And I always- I always thought that was so prescient—the way that you know that it was so clearly identified, and there was like almost like a permission given to live and also do the work.
0: Yeah, I think it's quite beautiful if you if you look back to the um, the really like you know the, the suttas of that sort of encode the Buddhist teaching, rather the earliest sources of the Buddhist teaching. There are a lot of different householders that become very enlightened. You know, from Anatta Pindaka to Chitta, there's just different people that the Buddha talks about, um, men and women who just sort of take, take that next level leap. And they're still householders, you know, they don't, they don't necessarily take robes and become monks. And there's nothing, you know, the, the work that I'm putting out there is nothing against being a monk, if that's what you so desire. That's actually a beautiful thing to be able to give your life, you know, because what, what do monks do? They're sort of like donating their lives in service of the Dharma. Um, which is beautiful. But if that's not for you, that's great. You know, it's also not for me. I I like having, you know, I like being married and I like, you know, being able to move about my life in my own way. But that does not stop you from making serious process on the path of liberation.
1: Yeah. W- which also brings up really, actually, the next thing that you you focus on Which is the fact that so often, you know, we're actually not doing this in isolation, that we're doing this in relationship with ourselves and with other people, with those that we love, with intimate partners. You're right. It's not about finding a partner who has flawless emotional maturity. It's about finding someone who can match your level of commitment, not just to the relationship, but commitment to heal themselves so they can love better, see more clearly and have more presence tell me more.
0: Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's the slow learning that, um, that I've been doing from just being with my wife, you know, cause we, I think a lot of these pieces that I wrote about partnership, they emerge pretty directly from, um, the experiences that I've had with my wife and how we've moved into just like a whole different phase in our relationship now, where like the first part of our relationship, when we were young, right. I, um, I was 19 and she was 18 when we first got together. But that first part of our relationship was really tumultuous and turbulent. Um, we didn't know ourselves. We didn't know how to treat each other well. Um, we kind of sort of stumbled through those years. You know, there was a lot of, like a connection was, was real, but it wasn't yet deep and it had no emotional maturity because I think your connection only really, can get super deep when you are able to open up those layers of yourself by getting to know yourself. And then you you can share them with another person and see how you can better harmonize together. But ever since we both started meditating, she's a serious meditator too, she's gone through these same transitions as well. And we have found that a lot of times when we used to fall into arguments, fall into conflict, A lot of that intensity has been removed so that when we have, you know, what we used to have arguments, now they're more like discussions or they're disagreements so that there's more sharing and more of us trying to understand each other's perspectives as opposed to trying to win over each other or, you know, like trying to one up each other in different ways. A lot of that, and in in no ways is our relationship perfect or anything like that. You know, we still have our struggles, but we have more tools with which to properly like process our struggle. And our primary tool is our own personal inner work that helps us just be more compassionate, be more aware and be more, um, you know, just just stop projecting onto each other all the time. Yeah. and, And I feel
1: like those same tools allow us to maybe grasp our own past selves a little bit less, you know, and past cells, yeah. maybe meaning five minutes ago, you know, yeah. the position that we argued fiercely for last week, you know, that I think the practice sometimes allows you to zoom the lens out a little bit and kind of like when somebody counters that position and you believe it strongly, rather than just say, okay, it's time to put the shields up and defend like crazy, you're kind of like, okay, that's, you know, I, I identified strongly with this set of beliefs or this, this thought. And maybe I still do, but let me at least hold myself open to the possibility that there is a different point of view here. Um, yep. And it's, you know, so it's not that we're just completely surrendering ourselves to being remade yeah. on a daily basis, but maybe we hold on a little bit less lightly along the way. But you know, one of the things that, that I'm curious about is what happens when two people are in a committed relationship and one is deep into a process of growth and one either isn't at all or they're on a much different mm-hmm. path or the pace And the commitment is profoundly different because that also can create its own sense of friction.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I think I've seen a lot of examples in my life of people being in really profound, deep relationships and also walking different paths. Um, You know, some people taking the path of therapy really seriously and getting a lot of benefit from that, but then they're not so much into... Um, meditating. And I've seen relationships really sort of blossom. I do see the challenges. I remember the one challenge in particular in my relationship was when, like, I felt this very big aspiration to start meditating two hours a day. Um, because I was getting so much for meditating. I was like, I got to keep this going, you know, on a daily basis, really spend time on it to keep this experiment going. And I started doing that before my wife. And there was a bit of a sort of a, an odd moment where, you know, she had started meditating as well, doing the 10-day courses, but she wasn't quite ready to start meditating two hours a day. So I think for a number of months, I'd say for about five, six months, I just, you know, just just felt really committed to it. And, um, and I kept going. And eventually, you know, she was moving at her own speed. She also wanted to do this, but she didn't feel quite ready. And I tried my best to not push her or anything like that. And I made sure that she, you know, she was okay with my decision to to take time from from our time together so that I could spend it on myself. And she was really supportive of that. And eventually things sort of clicked for her and she felt like she was ready and she started. But it was interesting seeing the opposite of that where when, so she was done smoking marijuana before I was, she just was, you know, it wasn't really serving her. And then for me, I felt like I needed a little more time with it. And there was this period where she had totally stopped and I kind of kept smoking for a few more months and she gave me the gift of her patience, right? Where she was just like, you know, do your thing. Like, I know you want to stop and just like, you know, find, find your time, move at your own speed. And that really helped me because I was able to feel like I didn't have a lot of pressure hanging over me. And I was really able to work out things within myself, and really see that, you know, this really is not serving me anymore, um, and it's actually like limiting the depth of my meditation. So I, you know, I, I felt really committed to going deeper. So I ended up letting it go, and and that was also really beautiful. But, but even realizing that we really do move at our own speeds, um, it's a hard thing, but an important thing to to embrace. And like long-lasting, committed relationships, because yeah, you're just you're not going to heal at the same speeds. You're not going to rest at the same speeds. You're gonna you're really your own individual person.
1: Yeah, which brings communication really front and center, and openness and vulnerability, which I know are topics that are dear to our heart. Also, and and it also really points to the very title of this book: clarity and connection. You know, at the end of the day, it all circles back to that, and it's almost like you know, connection is to a certain extent the byproduct of a devotion to seeing more clearly in the first place and then communicating what you see and also being open to that being communicated back to you. Um I wanna ask you about one other thing before we start to wrap our conversation and something that I know I've I've heard bubbling up in your conversations more and more recently, but I'm I'm guessing it's something that you've been dealing on for a long time, which is the notion of what you term structural compassion.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's um It's funny. I've been like that term. um, It's a term that hasn't been like fully developed yet. I don't think anybody and nobody really owns it. But to me, I see a lot of structural harm in the world where a lot of different systems kind of crash upon each other. um, And a lot of people end up getting hurt for different like if you take economic inequality, right all around the world that there are just so many people who just struggle to make their material ends meet. And it's not like, that. you know, they're not like lazy or anything like that. They're just like, it's, they're just stuck in a poverty trap. Cause I, And I know from firsthand, like I know how hard my parents worked and how they literally were not able to leave that poverty trap until my brother and I became older and started adding funds to the family you know, these, these, these structures that we exist in, and you can take that to not just from economic inequality, but, you know, racism, you can even look at um, climate change, or different, you know, patriarchy, you can just see how these different um, loose, and direct structures of harm, if we are able to sort of turn them upside down, and intentionally inject compassion into the situation. I hope that we can create something that we can call structural compassion and be able to recognize that in different areas where people are being either oppressed or hurt in some manner or another, we keep our eyes open to that and we stay active in trying to just uplift all people. Because I really, I see a transition um, happening in this century, hopefully, where we expand our idea of human rights to include that people are no longer suffering in this intense way, in a material way, so that they're, you know, can be educated, have healthcare, have these sort of simple, basic rights fully met globally around the world so that we can all live well. Because, and, then, and I think a lot of people fear that because immediately they, they think like, oh, this is like some strict form of communism, but it's like, no, it's just, we're just humanizing the world. We're just trying to, you know, help all people live well, and that doesn't mean that some people aren't going to be wealthy. You know, people can still benefit from the things that they create, but we do want to um, sort of remove that intense struggle that a lot of people go through. Like, you know, there's still people dying from hunger, people dying from simple diseases that could be fixed, and people suffering from different forms of racism, and you know, this this like onslaught of climate change that's about to befall us. Like, how are we going to be able to interact? compassionately with each other so that we can support all of us flourishing and living well
4: Mm.
1: yeah that is the big question um but the notion of structural compassion i just like that
0: yeah Uh it paints it like a sort of like paints an image you know because we know that there's a lot of structural harm but Let's move to our structural compassion.
1: Right. yeah. It's like, what would the systems of compassion to operationalize it yep. um, at and scale? scale it up. It's a really interesting question. Yeah. feels like a good place for us to come full circle as well. So hanging out in this container of a good life project, if I offer up the phrase to live a good life," what comes up?
0: Ah, to live a good life, I think um, I mean, for me, it's to develop as much equanimity as possible. I think equanimity has been the, the real, um, the treasure that I've found in this life. And I think it means, you know, spending time meditating. Like I, I go to courses really often, but I, I would like to, as I get older, to, to go to more and more um, because I get so much from that. And because I get so much from that, I'm able to give more.
1: Mm, thank you. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, NA, copyright 2024. I love how Diego comes at love from a place of such openness and curiosity. Next up, we have a good friend and sometimes collaborator, Rev Angel Kyoto Williams, who helps create a really powerful and inclusive frame for love at scale. Exploring the notion of holding ourselves and others in the space of love, of wanting something for but not from them. And also acknowledging the work that may need to be done is their work to do and not yours. Rev Angel offers a way to create a space of love, even for those who see the world very differently with the ultimate goal of liberation for all. Here's Rev Angel. So I've heard you talking in different areas and different domains to different audiences. And one of the things I've always marveled at is that you're so, you are so intentional with language and you have this capacity. To be stunningly frank and honest and direct, and yet at the same time expansive and inclusive, you know you, you can be in a room full of hundreds of white people you know and, and have and facilitate a conversation, a retreat a day that is very direct and very honest and with, you know loaded with hard truths, and at the same time. The way that you, it's not just the language, it's your presence. It's your physical, emotional, spiritual presence in a space combined with the way that you're so intentional about language that somehow creates this moment where hard truths seem to land. They seem to, to bypass defenses that I've seen so often go up. And I wonder if you've, I've been in rooms where I felt that, where you're sharing. And I wonder if you while you're sharing feel that same thing.
7: Well, you know, I I feel the people. Hmm. Right. I I am embracing, you know, individual people that I am so certain are as trapped in something that is not our essential nature. And so I want them to be liberated from that. And I hold them in that space of like, like I, 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 I want this for you and this is your own work. Right. And, and so this like, um, for me, it feels like I, I'm embracing and, and I hold the intention to embrace. I think I uh, benefit from, and this is, you know, has all kind of complex layers to it, of course, that I also, I don't want a thing from them. I want something for them. And, and that shift in a power dynamic is really critical. It's, uh, you know, a combination of allowing myself to, you know, unfold and mature and create enough of a mixed up kind of, um, you know, Economic viability that doesn't rely on anything i'm very intentional about you know i don't hold like a job I haven 't held a hell of a job you know since i was twenty two I walked out of a, out of an office I work for Essence magazine and I walked it I was like, I will never work for someone again and so i I organized myself to not be uh, which which has a you know that quality of loneliness right like an a an aloneness to not be dependent on any soul. Institution or individual for my livelihood, which is has its precariousness, of course, as well and lack of security in ways, and so all of this then you know develops more practice. It's like okay, I have to shift my notion of what security is. It's like this, con- it's this movement of things together. So I have to rethink what security is if I want to be free to hmm. say what I need to say in, and to create the space that I need to to create. And to step into a conversation with people in which I don't want something from them, and, and, and that allows me to be able to speak frankly and clearly and directly, and also to to hold them, you know, really from love. And I and I say that, and people might say, like, oh, it's like I don't I don't mean like, because <laughs> there's plenty of like, don't particularly like you, um, but love, right? That that real expansive, universal sense of you are caught, we are caught, and I get it, and I get that this is challenging, and I and I can't imagine how painful it is, but I can sit with you here while you walk through it.
1: Mm. The ability to access that. I'm curious about it. I've heard it described, um, especially in spiritual traditions, from people who do work around social justice as being resourced. Mm-hmm. And, and that may be through spiritual practice that may be through like contemplative practice that may be through study. Does it feel like when I think about the word resourced, I, I feel like it's, you know, to me it's like, okay, I'm, I'm I am equipped with a tool belt, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, for, for my heart to be okay as I move through something. Um, mm-hmm. But also resourced in what you just described in, in, in the capacity to actually hold love at that level. I have to imagine there's got to be a well of something that allows you to do that, that I, I wonder if many people have.
7: I think we, we all have it, whether we are tapped into it and can get out of the way, You know, do, the, do, the, do the labor of getting out of the way sufficiently to allow it to flow. and and that you said, well, is exactly like resourced that way, right? We sort of live in a commodified society where resources go to kind of our financial. And and, I mean, you can even say the word resources and people can feel a sense of scarcity. I invite Mm -hmm. folks to take a moment right now and see, you know, if that word even right brings up scarcity. And so I think of resourced or resourcing, right? It's like I'm resourcing. And that for me connotes, a channeling, a tapping into, right? The well of the, the love of the whole universe. It's not, it's not my love. It's not personal love. It's not like I'm having love. Like I love you, Jonathan. Right. And, and there's a personal love to it, but that kind of space is a bigger love. I'm surprised by it. Believe me, I have moments being like, Whoa, that's, that's wild. Um. But it's being able to be tapped in. And when I feel, if I, if I feel, when and if I feel myself getting in the way, right, like angel getting in the way of that channel of resourcing, right, that flow, that movement, that energy, that current, I have to have sufficient practice to, first of all, to recognize like, oh, you're slipping in there and getting in the way. Um, And to know what that feels like, right? In order to see all the signals of it and, and then to move. I have to be able to do both, both to recognize it and also to take action. And to do that again and again and again and again. That that critical practice is what I think makes the difference, what I know makes the difference for me. And I think because we, many of us, inhabit a society of ends, right? Like we get to the end of it, that that's one of the the things that challenge people because it's like, we want to get spiritual, right? And now that we're spiritual, we think we can just ride the little spiritual horse into the sunset. Right. It's like, check that box. Yeah. Check that box. And so, and then our stuff creeps up on us, you know, and some, you know, some white dude says something, you know, cranky and you know, am I going to keep riding that same spiritual horse, you know, or, or, or have I tripped on myself and gotten in the way and got my back up, right? And and now I'm ready to draw my sword. <laughs> um, and that sword is not, a, it's not a liberatory sword. You know, it's a, like you, you hurt me, you wounded me and I want to, I want to hurt you back sword. And if you don't know the difference of what you're wielding, because spiritual power is a power, it is a power. And, you know, like, With great power comes great responsibility. And for me, the responsibility is to be really, really attentive to what it is I'm wielding and for what purpose, towards what end. And there's only ever one end for me. Which is? Liberation.
1: Hmm. That feels like a good place for us to come full circle as well. Um, I asked you this question a long time ago, but I'm going to ask it to you again because Apparently I've heard people change.
7: (laughs) (laughs) Once in a while.
1: As we sit together in this cross-country container of a good life project, if I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up?
7: For me, uh, to live a good life really means to be able to return to myself with grace, with ease, with consistency and allow for the, the whole of who I am to unfold.
5: Mm,
1: thank you. Thank you. So I'm always so moved and inspired to question my assumptions about who is and isn't welcome into my own expression of love when I speak with Rev Angel. And finally, bringing us home today, another friend, writer, poet, songwriter, producer, and legendary spoken word artist, InQ, shares a deeply personal moment How he proposed by poem. And he then shares this really beautiful, moving spoken word offering with all of us and takes us all home with an invitation to find moments of magic and love, even when they're hard to see and embrace. Here's NQ.
6: So, my name is NQ, and I'm a poet, but my real name is Adam Schmalholz. And as with anyone else who has a real name, I also have a real life. And I decided to ask my girlfriend to marry me recently. And I told her we were meeting friends for dinner in this outdoor space. And so I let her out to this giant field that she had never been in before. And I turned her around and I said, hey, you know, before we meet our friends, can I read you this poem that I wrote about you? And she said, now, like before dinner? And I said, yeah. And she said, well, is it going to make me cry? And I said, yeah, probably. And she said, now, like before dinner? And I said, yeah. And I grabbed her hands and I read her this poem. Every love poem I ever wrote was about you. You are every dream I've ever had. and Now they've come true. You are every dream I've never had. Somehow they've come true. I gaze into your eyes and know there'll never be a better view. I see heaven in your face. I see children in your smile. I see our future and our present. Will you stay with me a while? Will you dance without the music? Will you laugh without the jokes? Will you cry without a reason? Will you play with all the notes? I've come to love you in a way that is impossible to quote. Forever and a day is not enough. Forever is a joke. Any moment we're together is forever, now or never, whether I am in your presence or too far away to measure, I respect you in the pain. I accept you in the pleasure. I'll be your shelter in the rains. You can shine in any weather. Every love poem I wrote was an invisible letter, reaching out beyond my time and space to what I would discover from a place that was unknown to a home inside each other. I am floating on a cloud. I am singing in the gutter. Our relationship is sailing and we do not need a rudder. I don't care where we go from here if here is with each other. Your soul is like a mirror. You're a goddess and a lover. You're a sister and a brother. You're a father and a mother. You're a son and you're a daughter. You're a stranger and a friend. Even when I end, our love's not something I can transcend. You're more than just a perfect ten. Your beauty lies behind your skin. It's the way you taste, reminding me of everywhere I've been. It's the way you smell, reminding me of everyone I've been. Your sweetness overwhelms me. Can we end where we begin? I'll only come back to write our stories intertwined again. You're the greatest poem I've ever read. You make me find my pen. You inspire me. It'll take me lifetimes to comprehend. You're my who, what, where, and when. You're my why I even try. I vow to have you and to hold you till the day I say goodbye. I vow for better or for worse as long as you are by my side. I vow to cherish you in sickness and in health until I die. On our first date, you asked me why I hadn't settled down. I refused to give an answer, but I have your answer now. I was always waiting for you. You're the reason that you asked. My words have never done you justice, but I search for them at last. I've asked myself a thousand questions about who I want to be. I've asked myself a thousand questions to reflect on you and me. I've asked myself a thousand questions, but your love's what set them free. There's only one question left, so I'll ask it on one knee. And just to keep you in real time, that's when I got down on one knee. (laughs) Andriana. I want to spend the rest of my life with you. I promise I'll do right by you, morning, noon, and night by you. I promise I'll be nice to you, even when I fight with you. I promise I will fight for you. I'd even give my life for you. I promise I will write for you. My art is now my life for you. My heart is yours, so on your darkest day, I'll be the light for you. And when you're out past midnight, I promise I'll leave a light for you to guide you home into my open arms if that's all right with you. They say that love is blind, but you're the one that made me see. I've asked myself a thousand questions that have brought you here to me. I've asked myself a thousand questions, but our love is what set them free. There's only one question left. Will you marry me? And that's when she said yes. And we kissed and we hugged. And the guy that I had hired to take pictures who was hiding in the bushes jumped out. It was quite a scene. And then i had set up this picnic like 30 yards away. And so we walked over there and had like a vegan feast that was all set up and enjoyed the sunset. And it was a really beautiful moment. And I guess the reason that I wanted to tell you this story is because I think we're all responsible for creating beautiful moments right now. I mean, there is an enormous amount of pain and suffering in the world, but we will never get this time back. And so I think it's up to us to change the narrative, either in big ways or in small ways. And we did that. So when we look back on this summer, we have this beautiful memory. And so I leave you with that. Find a way to change the narrative in your life and know that I'm sending you love.
1: So I hope you found this week's How to Love and Be Loved special compilation episode both moving and valuable. We're all in a moment where we need more love in our lives, but also more broadly, we need to find ways to see, to reconnect with, and find ways to love others, even those who don't necessarily see the world the same way that we do. Because if we don't, we'll find ourselves living in a world that keeps shrinking Bounded by some illusion of safety, yet perpetually constrained by an inability to be and feel fully seen, held, embraced, and loved, and by the incapacity to offer that same grace and space to others, wishing you a little bit more space in your heart to find, to give, to receive, and to be loved. This episode of Good Life Project was produced by executive producers Lindsay Fox and me, Jonathan Fields. Christopher Carter crafted our theme music. Good Life Project is a part of the ACAST Creator Network. And of course, if you haven't already done so, please go ahead and follow Good Life Project in your favorite listening app. And if you found this conversation interesting or inspiring or valuable, and chances are you did since you're still listening here, would you do me a personal favor, a seven second favor? And share it, maybe on social or by text or by email, even just with one person. Just copy the link from the app you're using and tell those you know, those you love, those you want to help navigate this thing called life a little better so we can all do it better together with more ease and more joy. Tell them to listen. Then even invite them to talk about what you've both discovered because when podcasts become conversations and conversations become action, that's how we all come alive together. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Fields, signing off for Good Life Project.